have to use a Chinese expression, um, Deng Xiaoping, who says that um, if you want to get to the other side of the river, it's nice to have stepping stones. And so we were stepping stones. We were, you know, we try out this, we try out that, and then we get to the other side of the river. Now, we may disagree on this a little bit. Calling the next grand bargain the great leap sideways. This is the podcast from hell. Grand bargain. Decolonizing aid. Twenty-six Humanity. Humanitarian action takes place at the edge of chaos. And to find the right answers, we need smart, honest conversations. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. One of the fringe benefits of working with humanitarian action is the people you get to know and the deep trusting bonds you build with them. One of my people was Siri Melkatelier. Siri and I worked together in the Red Cross 20-some years ago, and we've continued collaborating in recent years in ACAPS. Siri passed away earlier this month, and yesterday, as I was flying home from the funeral, I was listening to an old conversation that Siri and I taped in August 2020. Part of the conversation was released as episode four under the title Precisely Wrong. I'd forgotten what a great conversation it was. And so this morning I sat down and edited a new and longer version of the conversation. And as you will hear, Siri combined a deep understanding of an expertise within demography and public health with a practical, courageous determination to make herself part of difficult, messy, painful problems. She did not play it safe. The fact that she was also humble and funny made it a true joy to work with her, and I will miss her a lot. Enjoy the conversation. Shiri Melkateli, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, We know each other from the Red Cross, where we worked together, I guess, almost 20 years ago. And... uh, I've always so enjoyed your perspective on the industry we work in. You, are, you, you have a very fresh perspective. And so I'm so happy you, you took time to do this. Thank you. Maybe we can start by um, you telling us a bit about your background. Where, where did you start out in, yeah. in terms of your career? Okay. I come from a rather <clears throat> international family. Um, uh, but I guess in my family, it's always been clear that you're here on earth to make it a better world. It was just a little bit unclear to me in the beginning how I would do that. But it was clear that was the goal, making the world better. And uh, then um, I thought, okay, I think it was really the Biafra war that really made me think, I have to do something about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, All these starving people, um, uh, I think it actually influenced quite a lot of people. It was very graphic. And I had some, um, you know, fellow students who are from Biafra and who talked with such loud voices and such grief. I just thought, I have to do something about this. And so I started studying public health. And, um, and so I finished in 1970. And I studied it with a major on um, public health demography. Um, and then um, went on to, first I took a job in, in Switzerland for two years with a private planning com- uh, company, but then I thought, this is not it. I want to join international something. I first thought of going to Greenland, actually, because I thought Danes should do something close to home um, and do whatever they can. And then I, uh, then it, But then it turned out there were possibilities with the UN. So I was with the UN 
a, a, a total of, I think it's 26 years, various UN organizations, um, and, um, you know, postings in Afghanistan, in North Korea, in China, twice in China, actually, um, and also dealing with um, a lot for five years with African countries, but from New York, and both on water and sanitation programs and family planning programs, demography um, issues, first census in Afghanistan, for example. Yeah, and then at some point I thought my children really have to come back to Denmark to um, become Danes. And so in 1992, I came back and had the opportunity to become the head of uh, the International Department of Danish Red Cross. And so since so-called retirement, I have, um, I thought I better go back and find out whether all the things that I recommended to governments were really correct. Is there any evidence for all this nonsense? And so I thought I'd go back to university and see what I could find in the way of, that was really what I was seeking, to see is there basis for all the stuff I've been talking about. So I've been lecturing and, and uh, doing research since 2009. And so this very strong drive you come into the sector with, yeah. this, this idealism, yeah. has all this experience chipped away at that? Or is that still there? I don't think it's chipped away at it. Because, no, I don't think it has. Um, I still am very irritating. You know, anything that goes wrong in Denmark, I always feel I have to do something about it. And it's just this tremendous drive, which I have from my, especially my father. And um, uh, and no, I don't think it's gone away. Of course, sometimes I'm irritated at myself that I spend so much time thinking how I can change the world. I mean, give me a break. It's time to do something else. Uh, but um, But you can, you can change things. That's what keeps my drive still there is because I think I have made a difference. And so where what's the biggest difference you made? Where where what's the thing you're most proud about in in your group? Well, it's it's difficult to say, but I would give one example I always think of is the first time I went to China. This was in 1980, and at that time the theme in China was reform and opening up. They wanted to open up to the outside world. And so one of the things that the UN did was send a lot of people on scholarships, masters or PhDs. And that seemed a good thing at the time. They were, went to learn demography. They went to learn um, public health. And then I came back the second time. Uh, I mean, I think we sent, I can't remember how many, but it was many, like not only in the tens, but in the hundreds. Um, and then I came back in, uh, and it was a big you know, job to get people um, to select, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, then I came back in 2002 to China. And I noticed that when I went to meetings, Many of the people who were there and who were actually driving various kinds of developments, including, um, you know, reform of the one-child policy, they were people we had sent out 20 years before. They came back and they were the ones who were driving the change. They were the ones with the novel ideas. I thought, this is actually good for people to go outside, not because it was China, any country. It's good for me as a Dane to go outside of Denmark, good for anybody. It gives you a new perspective on the world and on yourself. I think that's one of the most um, fun things. So did you work with UNFPA both times in China? Yes, or, both yeah. times in China, yes. And the second time you came back as a representative? Yes, I was there the representative the first time too. Not much career development, but I wanted to see what what happened. So in, in building that relationship with the Chinese yeah. government, what was the most important? Yeah. 
look, China is, if you haven't noticed, a big country. And I'm just one person and a small organization. And uh, so obviously you can't do something unless you have a common goal. And so um, this was a long-term developmental kind of program. And of course you have to, um, they have to respect you and you have to respect them and be honest with each other about where you want to go. Very honest. Because there's certain things you can't change and certain things you can change. And if you have, you know, sort of international consensus on something, then it's a lot easier to try to change in that direction. Nobody lives up to international consensus, but, you know, try to go in that direction. So, I mean, it's obvious that they're, again, the ones who are driving it. And you have to, um, you have to see, do we agree on where we want to go? Is this an agree with, with international consensus? That's your biggest strength. That's, your, that's what, you know, you've got your back free because that's there. Um, and then you have to understand people's motivation. That to me is both one of the most fun things in life and also one of the um, most interesting. And it's a necessary thing if you want to sort of change things long, long, long term. And um, I think I told you before, but one of the most beautiful speeches I've ever had was when I left China and they gave me actually a prize, which was more, meant more to me than I thought. And, they, and the speech, they said, thank you for understanding us. That did not mean that they thought I agreed with them, but it meant that they thought I had made an effort to understand their motivation because otherwise it would be impossible to work together. And again, I emphasize it does not mean we agreed. Mm. But we found things where we agreed, we found things that we did agree on, and ways of, they used us to actually help change. That's what the purpose they saw. As they, they have to use a Chinese expression, um, Deng Xiaoping, who says that um, if you want to get to the other side of the river, it's nice to have stepping stones. And so we were stepping stones. We were, you know, we try out this, we try out that, and then we get to the other side of the river. But still, in spite of being a stepping stone, you... I like you, being a stepping stone. Yeah, you're able to maintain your idealism. Absolutely. So that's no, not a idealism, I mean, um, stepping stone to me is not a bad thing. Uh, it's something that saves you from drowning. Yeah. I don't mind being instrumentalized, being useful. And so what you just described for me is is a, a sort of a very solid developmental approach yes. to building partnerships, yeah. uh, working, finding common ground. Yeah leaning up against international uh, normative frameworks and so on. How does all of that change when you move into the humanitarian sphere? Yeah. Well, I think some things change and some things don't. I mean, the, you have different um, purposes in life, basically. Um, in, in emergency, you basically the, the first sort of high-profile purposes that you're saving lives, um, that you you know trying to avoid that there's huge excess mortality. And uh, so you're, and you often have a very short f time frame, and you don't have time to understand each other totally, because uh, that takes time, and you have to build e trust with each other. So I mean, you're trying to do some of those things, but you can't. And you're coming in because the again the sort of classical view of humanitarian is, and you can like it or not like it, is that um, the local society cannot cope, and so it needs outside assistance to survive. 
I mean, for me, maybe the definition of a humanitarian situation is it's not when you send out an ambulance, it's no. when you run out of ambulances. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's when the system exactly. breaks down. Yeah. And that's why it should be highly transitory and, and only used when you really, really need to. Yes. Because it, it's a very blunt tool. Absolutely. And you have to know because it changes over time. I think that's one of the most interesting things. You know, if you have an earthquake in Nepal and you have six million people who are affected, my field is often maternal health. And you've got to know that, you know, people don't stop having babies just because there's an earthquake. And uh, so you will have 10,000 women who are giving birth in the next month. And they, you know, 10% of them will need a cesarean. Otherwise, they will die. And they will die two hours from now. Hemorrhage takes only two hours to kill a woman. So you need to do it now. And how do you do that? And how, which corners do you cut? And which fights do you have in order to get that? And which, um, especially if we're going to be talking about data, how do you find out how many, how many maternity kits you need? And you only have one hour in Kathmandu, then you're going by car out to the area and there's no Wi-Fi. So you need to be able to know very quickly, what is it that I need? That's the emergency one. Now, everybody, many people think that's all there is to emergencies. Of course, there's also the 10, 20 year um, perspective when you have a refugee settlement in Uganda. Uh, but, um, and you have to know which phase you're in. I think that's very important to know which phase you're in. Yeah, and it, you know, it's something we've discussed for decades. Uh, yeah. These days we call it the nexus. Yeah, I think we called it something like that before too. It's been the there for- The gray zone, uh, <sighs> linking relief to development. I mean, it, it there's a lot of different concepts that yeah. essentially say the same yeah. things. How do you get these two systems to yes. operate seamlessly? Yeah. Now, have we gotten better at it? I think we have gotten better in some ways, in many ways, actually. I think- I think, for example, when I started working with the Red Cross, that was in 1992, we had no standards. Or we, as a field, had few standards. You would have the Rwanda crisis in 1994, and people came out and had wildly different standards for what they should do. That makes it much more difficult for the local government or the local society to take it over when you leave, and hopefully you do leave. And so if you have one pump that's one kind and another pump which is a different kind, I was working a lot with pumps at those days, um, again, it's very difficult for the local population to know how to fix them. That's a, a developmental issue also. But in, in a humanitarian situation, you're installing all this stuff and then you're leaving behind a mess because you're teaching people who will not be able to get... Let me give an example. I think it was Myanmar. Was it Myanmar or was it Cambodia? I think it was Com Cambodia, where one of the assessments was that all these donors had trained 20, 30, 40 different medical um, categories, none of which were compatible with the local definition of what a doctor should do or what a nurse should do or whatever else. They, had no, they couldn't be integrated afterwards. What a shame, but you don't have time. So it's this internal fight against time, which I think is very interesting, where you have to cut corners. Anyway, well, you, you asked whether it got better. Yeah. So I think we got better at the standards. I think we really got a lot better on that. Uh, you know, everybody's citing some of these interagency uh, committee uh, um, standards or the sphere standards. Everybody's citing these. That's nice. I like it. <laughs> not that you can always live up to it. Some of them are stupid, but at least you um, uh, not realistic. But at least you know more or less what you can disagree with. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's a good thing. 
people are, I think, in general, you don't have quite as many people who have never been outside Denmark who suddenly arrive in Rwanda and are supposed to look after a refugee camp. You know, I mean, no, you don't have that so much anymore, so much. Um, coordination, now we may disagree on this a little bit. I think we've gotten better. At least you have meetings, but of course, I mean, meetings, this is a horrible word, but of course a meeting can just be a waste of time. I think they figured out in Mozambique that they spent 40% of their efforts on coordination, something like that. I mean, with, you know, instead of getting, and we still don't have, and this really upsets me because I am data obsessed, um, is, um, you know, when you have 40, 50 different health surveys in Haiti, by different organizations with different definitions. So you cannot get a, you know, wasting time and you're not getting a normal picture out of it. Just to be able to show with your own log um, t-shirt on TV that you have the data. This is a horrible part of it. Yeah, just to get back to you on the coordination side yes. of things, right? Sorry, yes. So I, I don't disagree that we've gotten better. Right. I think my issue is- Because we were so bad. <laughs> there's that, but there's also that we we have somehow detached the the exercise of coordination from the benefit we yeah, derive yeah, on yeah, it, right? Yeah, so yeah, what's yeah, the return yeah, on yeah, investment? It's sterile. What's what what is the optimal level of duplication? Yeah. If you spend ten million dollars coordinating, yeah, you can duplicate distribution for nine million dollars yeah. and still get a better outcome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cost benefit of it. Yeah. Yes. And 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 that's I think is is where my issue lies, and I I probably tend to think that that we need to replace coordination and uh, co sorry we need to replace coordination with collaboration yeah. as the central operating principles yeah, yeah. but but that is a very long story yeah. and I'd love to talk data with you <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so should we jump into the data sure. discussion i mean so so in a humanitarian situation you're under time pressure you often have no clue what's going on yeah. and still you have to make decisions yeah. so so Talk a bit around your 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 take on on data decision making support. Yeah. Okay. I think um, I'd like to start out with some quotes from other people with which I totally agree. One of them is I've heard it from Gilbert Burnham from Johns Hopkins. I don't know whether he made it up, but he says public health is about making decisions on incomplete information, and that is of course especially so in a humanitarian situation. But let's face it, that's the rest of life too. You're always making decisions on incomplete information. It's just that in a humanitarian situation, things are changing so quickly and you don't have time to gather all those data. So, I mean, how do you, how do you find some really smart data and not just collect data? And so then I want to quote what I believe is uh, somebody called, um, what's his called, Garfield? What's his first name? Dr. Richard Garfield. Yeah, Richard Garfield. And uh, you also quote that in ACAPS. Um, and that is, um, number one, know what you want to know. Number two, makes sense, not data. And number three, it's better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. I love those. Because people gather data on things that really are not useful. And what they often do is to say, oh, we have this situation. Everything is new. We have to go and gather data everywhere. You don't have to. You should be brave enough to collect data all the way from the, the in Afghanistan, the Riz Safed, the white beard guy. He knows a lot of stuff. You, um, the taxi driver, the driver always knows a lot of stuff, uh, as well as what walking around and seeing things and what you can get online and what you know the standards are from whatever. And you don't even have to necessarily always look it up in sphere. You should have some things in your cortex of what you can expect. Otherwise, why do you go to university if you don't expect anything? 
And, and so I think it's, you know, that thing of making sense, not data, not more data. Because if you want really statistically significant stuff, it'll take you three years and take cost $3 million. And then the last one, be approximately right rather than precisely wrong. You're always operating within uncertainties. So exactly as you were saying before, cost benefit of making it even more precise. For somebody like me who is sort of swayed by statistical thinking, that doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, you don't have to have it precise. It doesn't have to be confidence level of this and that. You use the word brave. Yeah. Have we become less brave as a community? Probably. I mean, bravery is, to my mind, is having the courage to, maybe that's what comes when you standardize everything. Then you think, okay, I go according to the standards, otherwise I get fired. Uh, so you don't have to think. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I think that might be part of it, that um, you don't have to think yourself because it's already there. And that's a very dangerous in general in life, and especially in humanitarian situations. I mean, I've been working on and off with humanitarian. It was the full-time job for 10 years when I was director of, of, of Red Cross International, but uh, International Red Cross and Danish Red Cross. Um, but um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I'm not sure. And I don't think anybody's come up with something I really think this is really what it is. But I think when you do have all these standards and coordination, maybe you say, okay, I'll just do what everybody else is saying, not rock the boat. So So standards make us less brave. Depends on what kind of person you are, I think. I think standards make me more brave because if I agree with them, <laughs> uh, I often disagree, you know. But I mean, if you're, again, if you go, something like human rights standards or humanitarian law standards, you are a much stronger person coming into somewhere. You feel your, you f your shoulders are down because you know what is what you're thinking is something that has been signed by the whole world, all the countries of the world almost. So you think, this is not just me, Siri, saying this. This is something where I know that we should have some of it. Make, it's a great difference, huge difference. And that one, I think, is is a good bravery, mm -hmm. good courage. Um, but of course, you also have to have the courage of saying right now, not human rights, don't worry, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, sometimes human rights, you can't necessarily get through to 100%, but you can say, okay, get 30%, whatever it is. But I mean, you also have to have the courage to, certainly on the standards that are technical standards, and say, look, maybe we won't be able to provide 15 liters of water, maybe we can do with less and just the first weeks. But as long as we know we're working towards something or other and that other people are also working toward that, that's where coordination should come in, that you're not working toward different standards. That's what went wrong in Rwanda. When everybody's working on different standards and then what do you, what do, you do with the population when you leave? Does that make sense? Yeah, very much so. So, I mean, one of the things, um, So I believe those four principles I mentioned before by Gilbert Burnham and, and by, uh, by, by um, Richard Garfield. Richard Garfield, yes. Um, and all of them actually require you to think. You don't just go to the sphere handbook and says it says that 3% of the population will be such and such. 
you, yes, you go to that, but you also try to think yourself. You know the difference between a roundabout and a, a traffic light? No, tell me. Roundabouts are safer yeah. than traffic lights, but most people prefer traffic lights. Because it's clear when you go and when you don't go. It's either yeah, red yeah. or green. Whereas when you have a roundabout, you have to be aware of your other yeah, yeah, people yeah. in traffic yeah. and, and, and you, you have to have a much stronger yeah. situation awareness. And I sometimes think that, that the problem we have is that we... It's so nice that it's red or green, so yes. we know whether to go or not. Yes. And then we stop thinking yeah. about the other players and, 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 and actually we, we end up with a system that is less safe and especially because we work in very messy situations. Yeah. You need something that you can hold on to because you're going to make, you are, I mean, when I teach this, uh, when I've been teaching this course on health and emergencies for 10 years and one of the words we use all the time is dilemmas. Mm -hmm. There is no answer. It's something where you have to make a decision. It's not, um, yeah, it's dilemmas. You may not have an answer, an easy one, red or green. So how do you institutionalize that? Because I think the problem is that we, we obviously don't want operations like Rwanda, yeah. which was a disgrace. Yeah. And everybody, it's a good standard to have of what not to do. Yes. But... If we then lose the, sen the, the practicality or the, the sensibility of how to apply these standards. Yeah. How do you do that? How do you institutionalize I don't it? know. Um, I don't know. What I think works well is to have a learning, thinking, a learning um, atmosphere in the office. That's very difficult if you're in a hurry. But what I find very interesting, and I've, I've found it works, is that every time you've done a major thing in your group, then you just have, instead of doing an evaluation, yes, evaluations are also great, but instead of doing that, to have it built into your daily work, so that you sit maybe once a week and say, what went right and what went wrong? And you, if you're the boss, you start out by saying what you yourself think you did wrong. Or you could do better next time. It's not right or wrong, but you know, things where you thought, hmm, maybe this, then it becomes okay to talk about what's good and what's bad without saying, ah, you're to blame. Sometimes what I've done, but that's only helpful if you have a wall, you don't always have a wall, but I put some of the, um, the problems up on the wall and then um, so that people sit there and look at them and say, for example, if you have an auditor report and they say, you know, you don't have backup, so you don't, some of it's very innocent and some of it's not so innocent. That's what I did sometimes in my office in North Korea. And we put this on the wall. And then every time uh, we had a meeting, we would look at them and say, have we progressed on it? Then it externalizes the problem. It's not your problem. It's something we have together. Now, I don't know whether this, to my mind, that helps you become willing to face things that you could have done better without feeling that you have to go and whip yourself. And I think, you know, anyway, that's just a general approach to life, but I think it also works a little bit in humanitarian situations. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, it's something I've been thinking a lot about because is, is the problem that we attract the wrong personality profiles to the sector so that right. we end up with bean counters who are only happy when all the blankets are accounted for? Yeah. Or is it that 
the combination of being very driven and and uh, motivated by an idealism combined with uh, by definition putting yourself into a situation where you will fail yeah oh, that, yeah that that, that 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 makes us seek safer ground yeah yeah is it, you know i can't remember who said this but it's so nice um we do we fail we do again we fail better do you remember who said that it's the whole fail forward yes thing yeah. Thing. yeah yeah i love that yeah yeah and i mean accepting also that you're not going to do everything right but i mean it's not just about not doing about making mistakes it's also you know um yeah but i of course also into this comes the whole accountability issue yeah i was just thinking yeah and i mean we all know this i'm not saying something original but if you have a, situ- a humanitarian situation basically what your part of the definition at least it used to be is that humanitarian situation is when the local society can't cope with whatever it is um whether it's not enough hospital beds we've seen it during corona also that we're trying to stay that we can cope with things um and, and then all these other people come in to um to sort of cope for you I've forgotten what my point was. <laughs> Maybe we'll cut that out. <laughs> uh, so maybe what it boils down to is accountability. Yes. I think that's at least a very large part of it. Now I'm all in favor of, you know, are you for or against? I'm for accountability. But it's just how it's done or to whom. And it's nothing new I'm saying. It's just so difficult to implement. Uh, I mean, this is not because stupid people are stupid or nasty. It's difficult. Uh, for example, let me give you an example. So during some of these food crises in uh, North Korea, I was also um, there for some of it. And we would have in the central medical store of the government, there would be 10, 20 different rub holes with medicines in them from each of the different agencies, from Red Cross, uh, from uh, UNICEF, from everybody else. And God help me, I also made one for UNFPA. So we had all these rub holes and each of them had their own truck bringing stuff out. And there was no coordination uh, because the government didn't have any clue what was in them. Now, you can lo- most countries, you don't agree on everything with the government. But each of these rub holes, why were they there? Why, they, why couldn't they just get together? Well, I mean, uh, and train people locally to look after them. It's a great job to look after rub holes. It's very interesting. So why is it? Because they were all accountable to their own donors. They had to account for how many um, you know, maternity kits they had brought out. And it couldn't be that somebody else was accountable for it. No, they had to have their own truck where they could tick off. With, and so it's partially also the accountability to your donors. And of course, also accountability to the public. You have to be able to get on TV with your T-shirt that says UNFPA. Nobody tells you to do that, but that's how you get money. If you get on TV with your own T-shirt and then people say, oh, these people know. They have the data, they must know. And then they get money. And so the interesting thing about what you just said is that that we know this. Yeah. And we know this fully. And we don't. And we've seen it for decades, right? Yes. I mean, I mean, people in humanitarian business basically want to do, to make the world better. Like I have that idealism. Basically, I think that idealism is there for most people. Yes, there are also many other things. There are the perks, there's the this and that. But I think 
Most of them, at some level, most people in the world, I think, no, maybe not every, <laughs> I sometimes mistake things. But uh, I think most of them working in humanitarian actually would like to make the world better. Yeah, I agree with that. And and so I think the really interesting question is, you, we started this conversation yeah. talking about idealism. Yeah. And clearly you're driven by that. Yes. And you tell me that the years haven't chipped away at your no. idealism. Why not? Well, you're there in North Korea. You put up your own rub hole. You're part of the problem. Yes. Why doesn't it chip away at your idealism? Well, I guess maybe I'm just the person I am. I mean, I don't. I think there are different kinds of. I just have an eternal positive attitude. I can't help it. I was born with it. Um, but it's also because, despite all of this, you can see there is there is progress. Of course, there's progress. I mean, um, the uh, maternity kits we we provided in, in in North Korea. Of course, they made a difference. They have very. You have to recognize the strength of each country. Also, I don't know whether I'm allowed to talk about this, but actually, North Korea they have very educated people, and they have very educated professionals. And um, um, I remember once walking with one of my uh, Korean um, uh, colleagues. We were visiting just sort of stopping the jeep because there was a temple we wanted to walk around. And some guy who was looking after the temple came over and said, what's this foreigner doing? That's, that's what I was told. And um, and then the um, my colleague explained that we're here because we want to help the maternal mortality. And the man was so happy. He smiled and he um, you know, said, thank you, thank you, thank you. He wants to do that too. I mean, there's this motivation that you can find in your colleagues and normal people in the country. And you can actually help to, um, to 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 improve it, and we did. The maternal mortality improved, and you can have all kinds of discussions with people on the way and say, "But what about this guideline? And what about that guideline? How did it work?" Yes, and you can help them actually have the accountability, a, a, a sensible accountability, and and let them get interested in making things better. Because you can show them, not show them, they know. But I mean, you can be, as again, the sort of the stepping stone. You can be the one who's helping them to access new information. You are their window on the world sometimes. And I think you once told me that in all your travels, you've learned only two things. One, how much alike people are. Yeah. And secondly, how different people yes. are. Yes. And that's something I actually learned when I was five. We moved to Norway. <laughs> <laughs> and try to explain, I mean, this is getting, you know, linguistic, but I mean, try to speak as a little girl of five with a little girls of five in Norway, and you have completely different ideas of what some of the words are, and some of the words are the same. Like the numbers words, forget it. I really was a laughing stock. I said, they said, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's what's fun. I mean, you. I think also what's important in this, yes, I want to help the world, but it helps that, first of all, I get paid for it. Yes, that's nice. And it helps that it's very interesting. It's eternally interesting. Public health, to my mind, is eternally interesting. And you learn about yourself. I think that's interesting. You learn why you hold the values that you do. So why are you different from these other people? Why are they different from you? That's one question. But why are you different from them is another question. I think I think a lot of what you're saying is really around empathy. Yeah. Of course it is. 
I'm not the only person in the world who has empathy, but I think it's empathy is, is both interesting and a good thing, I think. I mean, it's also interesting if you, uh, I can quote now, Halston Mahler, former head of WHO. So he knows his stuff and on health systems. And he said once to me, the most important thing in a health system is motivation. Forget about vaccines, forget about everything else, the motivation. I thought that was beautiful. And uh, I think it's very true. Yes, you also do need vaccines. But I mean, um, the, the thought that it's, the most important thing is what motivates people. If you don't have, if you don't know that, you're lost. And so with your public health background, yeah. we, as we speak, we're in the middle of one of the biggest yes. global crises yes. we've, we've ever seen. What, what do you see? <laughs> well, I think it's very interesting because I was telling the head of our department, I was saying, look, we just have to tape the whole thing and then replay it in August. We don't have to teach anymore because people are learning all kinds of concepts that, you know, I couldn't, you know, I spent hours trying to teach <laughs> the thought of herd immunity or what is called in English a uh, reproduction number. Um, that is um, how quickly you, you pass it on to others. Um, those things, it was, you know, I really had to struggle to get people to understand it. And now everybody knows. And one of the most important things, I think, I hope, at least some people have taken on board, is that we don't know everything. And that we have to be, as Gilbert Bernard says, we have to be humble enough to say we don't know everything. And on the other hand, we have to be brave enough to do something. I think that that's very wise saying. And I think that COVID-19 is teaching people that we don't know very much. Actually, we're learning all the time. Yeah, it really does test our tolerance for ambiguity, I think. Yes. And different countries are doing it so differently. And what do the leaders say? Do they talk about we or do they talk about I and they? You know, it's all this. How do you approach public health? I think it's very interesting. What are the implications for the humanitarian sector? Yeah, a lot of people have talked about that. I don't know. I think one of the things some journalists ask me is some of the, it's, um, I, I think it's two-way learning. One of the most important things I think is this ethical principle of um, triage. Um, where uh, I was talking about with uh, a journalist who said, what can we learn from the humanitarian sector? And I said, one of the most um, scary parts of humanitarian ethics is triage, where if you have um, the difference usually is between mass casualty and uh, uh, multiple casualty and mass casualty. Mass casual, multiple casualty, sorry, is when you have, you're stretched, but you can still manage. And you, can, and you can still treat those who are most sick first versus mass casualty where you have, it's overwhelmed. You and run out of ambulances. You run out of ambulances or beds or whatever it is. And you then start treating those who are most likely to survive. So this scary thing we've had in several countries, I won't mention names, where they say we're not going to treat people over 60. And it may be a humanitarian principle you're living up to. That's pretty scary. Uh, uh, and I mean, the question is also, when do you decide that? You know, if you're really overwhelmed, maybe that's what happens. 
If you're not that overwhelmed, is that a little bit too early to put that principle into place? So it's timing also, also in context specific, yeah. You, you're nodding. I mean, you think it's scary. Well, I think that we talked about empathy, and I think yeah. the fact that we have become, quote-unquote, the victims of this yeah. one <laughs> may enhance our yes, empathy. Yes, 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 absolutely. I also think it reshapes our understanding of how physically we work together. You know, I, I do think it will disrupt the way we work in, in, in a number of ways. Yeah. Um, the thing that stands out to me is how we handle ambiguity. Yeah. And I think where we go wrong is we always want to put it in a box. Yes, but that's exactly what I mean also, that, you know, we don't know everything. No. We don't know what the situation is and how to handle it. And um, I think it's very dangerous to say we know everything and we are doing it the right way. I don't think we know yet. And I, I really, really hope, because I think it is a very healthy thing for people to know that we don't know everything and that we do have dilemma, dilemmas and ambiguity, as you say. I'm hoping that will stay. Yeah, I, I, I do too. And I think there, I think there are two different uh, aspects to the ambiguity. Yeah. On one side, we actually don't know what things mean. We don't know a lot about right. the disease. Yeah. And on the other hand, we don't have good data. Right. So we don't know what the dashboard is telling us. Right. And, and we don't know whether the speed is correct either. Right. And of course, if you've gone to university, you know that um, viruses usually behave in such and such a way. But at this point, we really don't know, for example, the big thing is Im uh, immunity. We don't know how much and how quickly and uh, the, all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, without that, it's very difficult to decide on the strategy. And so what it, what it really has done for me is, is uh, my thinking is around humanitarian action as a narrative. Yeah. Right. How do you shape the narrative? What what what's the story of COVID nineteen? Yeah, we just don't know. We have a whole bunch of assumptions. Yeah, around oh, Africa is going to be really yeah. badly affected. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Yeah. Latin America right now is really badly affected. Yeah. Why is that? Why is it? You know, is it because we don't measure it in in certain African countries? Is it because we we just don't know? And so. Not knowing what the story is, it's like um, it's like a, a car spinning its wheel. Yeah. It doesn't know where to go. And I think the most scary part of it, scary being because the numbers are scary, is, you know, are we... Some people say, look, um, in the beginning I had some empathy or sympathy for thinking, let's just develop herd immunity and some people will die. But maybe... So, I mean, the whole thought that you have to weigh the economic impact, because economic impact has health impact. So you may have more people dying from economic impact than from Corona, from COVID. And um, so I'm a public health person. Of course, I want to save lives. And I also see the impact of if you don't do it and if everybody gets, and the long-term effects, I mean, so many things we don't know. But it's that basic dilemma, which I think is so interesting when different countries are uh, approaching it differently. And I don't think we know the answer yet. No, but it's also clear that probably it was right to be quite cautious in the beginning Absolutely. because of the high levels of ambiguity or, yes. or information gaps. And, and it becomes easier over time as we learn. Absolutely. And that's um, 
not to quote anybody, but actually the Danish prime minister said that, you know, we don't know everything. We will make mistakes. I thought that was a good starting point. And she says also the worst thing we could do is to wait. Yes, I totally agree with that. Um, I'm just also, you know, obviously the whole world is in a crisis, but we hopefully will know more so that we can um, slowly creep out of it. Maybe a last question for you. So you, we sit here, you're still as idealistic as you were when you started out. And and I think anybody who listens to this can 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 hear the truth in that statement. Would you still pick the same path with what oh, you yes. know? You still go to the yes. same, yeah. Again, because I think it is, you know, part of a life ideal, but also because it is eternally interesting. It keeps your brain going 24 hours a day. No, not quite, but um, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and because you learn so much, I mean, the same things that I was saying before, you learn a lot about yourself, you learn a lot about other people. And I think and you deal with people and their motivations. Yeah, I don't see how it could be better. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>